Um, I just want to say thank you again for, for coming on and being interviewed by me. My pleasure. Yeah, so this is uh, for anyone who doesn't know uh, who we're speaking to, if they haven't gathered it from the video, uh, from the title, uh, I'm talking with uh, David, uh, David Allen, who is, I think, probably most famous for writing GTD. Um, you were just explaining to me now that the books stacked up behind you are all the different translations of Getting Things Done. Is that right? Getting Things Done and Ready for Anything and yep. Making It All Work and the new workbook and Getting Things Done for Teens. So wow. those are the, all the Getting Things Done. Uh, library of stuff. So That's far. amazing. How many languages has it been translated into? Uh, getting things done is in about 30 languages. I think the new edition may be 28 languages, something like that. That's amazing. Yeah, I just reread the, the new edition. I think GTD is one of those books that um, a lot of people read once. Uh, but to really get the most of it, like all the best books, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, whatever it is, you really have to read it three, four, five times. And every time I go back to it, I get new things out of it that I just wasn't ready for. You know, we'll talk a bit about it later, but the horizons idea, you know, the the bigger picture thinking, you know, when you get started, you're just so swamped in the initial like brain dump. And then you kind of have to read it a few more times. Also, I think the first thing that everyone does when they read GTD is implement GTD plus all of the great ideas they think are better from their productivity system. I don't know if that's something you see commonly. It's a common uh, trait, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I did that. I jumped and I got all of the software and I, um, and I, I implemented GTD, but I was like, I'll just make these tweaks because they'll be better. And it took me until the third or fourth time that my system collapsed and probably the third time that I read the book to just say to myself, why don't I just try and do exactly what David says <laughs> in getting things done and we'll see what happens. And it was so much simpler. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Well, there are a lot of miles on, on, on the tires before I wrote the book, you know, so that was, you know, it, as I say, it took me 20 years to figure out what I'd figured out and that nobody else seems to have done it like that and that it was bulletproof. Yeah. But there's thousands of hours one-on-one -on -one with some of the busiest and brightest people on the planet behind all of that. So, yeah. you know, it, it was tested in the fires <laughs> you know, a, a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. Again, I think like, you know, if you read, um, all of the, you know, if you read How to Win Friends and Influence People, if you read any of Kobe's stuff, the, the books that, you know, it's always intimidating when you read someone's amazing, I guess, a masterwork. But actually what you have to remember is what makes it a masterwork is all of that detail and context and all of those many thousands of hours of experience of knowing exactly what it is that goes wrong that go into it. So that definitely comes through in the stories in the book. Um, hey. Well, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a ta-da, ta-da kind of person. Yeah. And, you know, for, for me to, put out a manual of essentially my, you know, my professional career and all I'd learned for it, it needed to be, I needed to make sure it was really right. Yeah. And, and that, it, and that, uh, that you couldn't punch a hole in it. So. Yeah. yeah. One of the, one of the things, so I'd love to talk about your backstory because um, it's something that I wasn't, you know, when you read getting things done, I th and I think a lot of people, when they read a book like this or, a, you know, any, self-help book where everything is put together, they think, wow, this can't possibly be for me. This guy has clearly had it all sorted out from day one. You know, this is just his system and he's just said it. And I was reading your Wikipedia bio doing my sort of pre-interview stalking. And I was reading about your 35 jobs before the age of 35 and all of the amazing, crazy, wonderful things you've done. And I would love to just hear a bit about how you how did you I mean obviously there's the the part where you started doing the coaching, but even before that, what did that how did that influence your thinking and, and how did that influence where you are today? Well, let's see if I can give you a short version of a very long story. <laughs> um, 
I, I thought I was going to be an academic. I, I you know, in, in college, I got fascinated by philosophy first, and then I got more fascinated by the philosophers themselves and why they thought the way they thought. So I became an intellectual historian, or at least that started to study the history of culture, history of thought, history of whatever. And we didn't call it paradigms back then, but that was really what it was about, the paradigm, the cultural paradigms and how those affect perception, performance, and all kinds of stuff. So I was fascinated by that. I've always been fascinated by sort of how the, the invisible stuff affects the visible. Because mm -hmm. we know, like, you can't see emotions or you can't see the, the you know, mental stuff, although, although there are some, you know, psychically attuned people that think they can or, or, or maybe can. Uh, but the truth is, there's a lot of invisible stuff that does mm -hmm. affect us visibly. And I figured, since I'm the laziest guy you ever met, I figured if you could get a hold of what's really driving all this and sort of get a hold of it and get inside of that, then uh, you, you could really be, be masterful, you know, without having to work much harder. Yeah. So, you know, that that was in retrospect anyway. I can't say that I would have put those words on it, you know, back then, but that was why history or history of thought sort of intrigued me. So then I got into graduate school at American Intellectual History, you know, in Berkeley in 68. And uh, I, I actually, I, I was enjoying it, but just some things happened in my life where I've started to become more interested in achieving my own enlightenment instead of just studying other people who had theirs. So, and I didn't, I had a sense that I, I wasn't going to find it in academia. So I dropped out of graduate school mm. and then went on a, you know, really intensive self-exploration journey. Yeah. Uh, martial arts, spiritual practices, meditation stuff, uh, all kinds of, you know, all kinds of, of interesting things, you know, about that. So I was more yeah. interested in finding out who I was mm. and what I was and what I was about. And, you know, the, the, the sort of inner game, if you will, mm. and not particularly that interested in material stuff. Matter of mm. fact, you know, I'm not, I've never been particularly entrepreneurial or aspirational sort of in terms of the material world out there, but I had to pay the rent. So, um, you know, had to get a, get jobs and that's where a lot of my <laughs> 35 jobs, you know, showed up. Although my first job was magician at age five, yeah. you know, in Palestine, in Palestine, Texas. So, um, anyway, so then I started to, I, I, I knew some, I knew folks out there that had, were starting their own businesses, had small things that they were doing. They seemed to know what they were doing. So I became a pretty good number two guy. So mm -hmm. I helped, you know, friends start a, a New Orleans style restaurant in LA. I helped a, a friend manage a service station and a car restoration business. I sold mopeds. I sold vitamins. Um, I helped a friend of mine run a landscape company in mm -hmm. San Fernando Valley. And, you know, so of course, I would just show up and go, well, how much easier can we make this? Mm. You know, now they call that process improvement. I'm, I'm just lazy. There's got to be some easier way to get from here to there. So I would help them sort of improve their systems and their processes. And then it got fixed. I got bored. <laughs> so then I'd leave and go find another job. And then I discovered they call those people something and they pay them. They're all consultant. Gee, okay. So hung up my shingle in 1981, 82, something like that. And Allen Associates. So that's when I started just working on a project by project basis for people who seemed to, you know, think I might be able to help them in terms of their, their, their businesses. But I, I've never had any formal traditional um, education in business psychology or time management. Yeah. So, you know, I thought, well, and it turns out that I, because of my involvement in some personal growth training uh, uh, groups uh, that I, there was a pretty big network of people, a pretty sophisticated folks back in the 
late seventies, early eighties. And, uh, you know, I became a trainer in for insight seminars. It was all avocational, so I wasn't getting paid for that. But I met that way. I met a lot of people, pretty sophisticated. I met some pretty sophisticated consultants. So I you know, just kind of hung out with them to sort of tease them for how, what did I need to learn about that kind of process? And then one guy turned out to be a real good mentor of mine for a couple of years. You know, I, I acknowledge him in the book. Uh, and, you know, he taught me some, I, I got to hang out with him and watch how he worked his process. And he was a very, he was focused very much on organizational change and organizations that wanted to go faster, further, different, whatever. How do you walk them through that process to make that happen? And so he came up with some techniques that he had discovered after his 25 years of working a lot of with organizations and particularly executives of what was necessary for an organization to really make a change and make it stick was to clean it up a lot of old business, a lot of open loops. And there was a lot of stuff hanging around in people's heads that was hanging them up and they were avoiding making next action decisions about a whole lot of things. Yeah. So he came up with a process which became, you know, integral to the getting things done thing, you know, which was empty everything out of your head that has your attention and make next action decisions about all of them. Yeah. You know, and handle yeah, the two minute ones, you know, stuff like that. So that was, you know, I worked with him and I saw so many problems that were solved just with that first event. <laughs> yeah. as opposed to even the rest of the whole consulting package, which I, you know, I, I was involved in, in all of that, for, you know, quite a number of years, but that was, that became sort of the core thing. And I, first of all, I was blown away by those techniques because he did, he used it first on me. You know, I emptied my head I, and I wasn't broken. You know, it wasn't like I was in some dark pain. I thought I had my act pretty well together, but when Dean walked me through the process and I emptied everything out of my head, and then made next action decisions about each one of them. I watched how transformational that was just in terms of my energy, how much more clarity and focus and control and, you know, mental space that created. And so, you know, I turned around and started using that for my, with my clients as well, and turned out it produced exactly the same results, more clarity, more stability, more control, more focus. So I thought, well, that, that's pretty cool. So that became the part of what I was, uh, you know, doing in my own little consulting practice. Then a you know senior HR guy, head of human resources, actually for a big corporation, saw what I was doing. They said, "Gee, David, we deal with those kind of results on our whole company. Can you, you know, design some sort of a training mechanism or seminar format, you know, where we can reach a lot of people with this model as opposed to one-on-one?" -on -one? So I did that, and it was quite successful. So I wound up being thrust into the corporate training world, um, and then since then, that was you know Lockheed, 1983, 84. And, uh, you know, then from then on, you know, until I published getting things done was thousands and thousands of people went through seminars that I was doing, but all by really referral based. I didn't never did any marketing. All I did was pick up the phone, you know, and, uh, and, you know, sort of manage my own sort of boutique consulting and training practice. My consulting turned into a lot of coaching one-on-one -on -one with senior people in these companies. So that's where I got a lot of experience and this, you know, refining, honing, and, and testing this methodology and making yeah. sure it was bulletproof. Yeah. So there's a, that's a short version of a very long story. Arthur, I think there's, a, there's a lot of really cool lessons in there. I think I'm super interested, maybe it's a conversation for another time, but I'm super interested. A lot of the time when I see people who are fascinated from a young age by how people work, there's often a reason behind that. There's something which like makes them click. And suddenly, you know, they, 
when when you have a very normal very straightforward childhood and everything runs on the rails you kind of never think to ask questions about why people think the way they do and what it is that's going on uh, maybe it was your magic that was this what kicked it off you know i think i was watching something recently they were saying you know the thing about magicians is they um, they're the they were the first psychologists right they understand things about the the way attention works and the way people see things in a way that that us muggles don't understand right um do you think that's what kicked off your your interest in sort of how people's brains work like seeing the bit i mean at age five the ability to fool someone who's you know 20 years older than you or do you think it was something I else i don't know i have no idea it was a it was sort of a gradual process mm -hmm. you know over all the all, all those years um you know i was an actor as a kid you know in the community theater mm -hmm. in shreveport where i grew up and you know that certainly gave me the experience of making things up and yeah uh, and and Vital having for people appreciate appreciate it, and and you know, also I think I've been an I've been an educator really more than anything else, you know, in my life. And uh, you know, I I had a lot of relatives that were school teachers, and I kind of grew up around that. My mom taught English; that's why I sort of knew how to write. Uh, so uh, that I think that was in my DNA anyway. Was that, yeah. and also um, you know, when I was. I can remember when I was like four or five years old, you know, a lot of kids want to be a fireman or a policeman or whatever they, I just wanted to be a horticulturist or a comedian, you know, or both. Cause I love to grow flowers. And I started growing flowers when I was four or five years old, you know, planting seeds and watching it grow. And then I also love to make people laugh cause I saw a lot of people in pain and a lot of people who were quite unhappy. And, and, you know, if I could make them laugh, you know, it was a healing process. It looked like I, I, I sort of knew that instinctively. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I wound up kind of doing both of those over, <laughs> over my life, you know, in sort of strange little ways, certainly not in any, in any traditional form, but those were, those were, I think those were a lot of my drivers for that and sort of awesome. understanding people, understanding myself and then understanding, you know, the dynamics of what is a human being and what do we do and how do we, how do we get free really? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a freedom guy I and mean, that's people often think, gee, David, you must be so anal retentive and so you know, uptight and, you know, strung out, you know, given the fact that I wrote that. And it's funny, I was just doing a, a keynote yesterday for a bunch of project managers and, and they said, you know, well, what is this? Doesn't this stifle your intuition and your spontaneity? And I said, you know, I am one of the most, I hate, I don't like to plan anything that I don't need to, you know, and if you hang out around me, you'll see I'm one of the loosest, you know, most spontaneous. I love following my spontaneous intuitive hunches and doing what I feel like doing. That's how I came up with GTD and why I knew it was so powerful because it actually allowed me to do that. It gave me the freedom to be much clearer and much freer in my head and being present with whatever I was doing. Yeah. And that, you know, as you get present, you start to discover there's kind of a natural um inspiration that yeah. emerges yeah. uh and you don't have to really work at it you get really yeah. clear you, just, you can't help but be inspired i still remember i still remember the first i was 20 when i picked up gtd for the first time there's a few books that sort of changed the way i look at things so uh, brian tracy stephen covey and tim ferris who i i know that you know well with uh, the four-hour work week and yours was one of them and i was uh, studying psychology uh, philosophy and physiology at oxford and i was trying to run two businesses and i was uh, I just invested in a property and my head felt like it was exploding you know and i felt 
you know, even though I, I had no plans, I felt constantly constrained by everything. I remember reading the first time you were like, just write one thing down and what the next action is. And I did it. And there was this magical moment of relief. And I, I felt, I was like, wow, I feel, I feel free for the first time. And over the years, I've had exactly the question that you, you've just brought up where people say, oh, but I'm a creative person. I can't possibly use GTD. I don't like to be tied down. And I, I always have to say, it's not till I, till I started writing everything down and putting in a system that I became the most creative that I've ever been because suddenly I wasn't using 80% of my brain to keep track of all the products or all the projects that I wanted to do or you know, buying the milk or whatever it was I had. Suddenly I could be free and also I could be totally spontaneous. You know, I, I, when someone would say, you know, I, I met some of my best friends just on a total off chance and instead of being like, oh, I, you know, I should, but I'll feel really guilty because I've got work to do or, or like feeling guilty afterwards, I could just be like, yeah, I'll just drop everything and follow this opportunity because I know what I'm giving up. I know what I'm not doing. Right. I think that's the real magic of the system. <laughs> well, it's magic, but it's also uh, um, a cautionary tale. The better you get at this, the easier it is. It's so easy for me to go, screw it. Just pile it up. I know how to empty all yeah, that. Yeah. On. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> it's like, I know the game and I know how to do that. And so I let myself kind of, you know, drop off the end of the pier many times and just go way out of control. Yeah. just having fun or just yeah. doing what I feel like doing because yeah. I know I know how to get back on. Yeah. So and I, and it's, it's, it's very easy to fall out of control, but it's also very easy to get back in. You know, and that's what I think the magic of GTD is that it gives you that capability. hundred percent. I always say to, um, to my clients, they always worry when things go wrong. You know, they fall off the wagon, they miss a weekly review, they don't do an evening planning session or they don't get their habits done for the week. And I always say that the magic of productivity is not being on the wagon, it's being able to get back on the wagon super fast. You know, it's, it's falling off, like someone who looks like they've got it really together is actually constantly just falling off, but they're getting back on so quickly that, you know, balance is always like falling, but just constantly correcting, right? So, so that's, well, that's how you walk. Real secret. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're constantly, like you're falling, <laughs> When you run, you're just you know falling off balance forwards and just catching up the whole time. So, um, well, it's also why the people most attracted to GTD are the people who need it the least. They're already the most inspired, positive thinking, aspirational, organized people. They already know the value of systems. They all know already know that they can produce high value when they have more space and more room. And their issues are just like yours was. You, you were just up to here. You just yeah, didn't yeah, have yeah. any room for anything yeah. else. And, you know, it's really, in a, in a sense, the most uh, dynamic and high-performing people that throw themselves out of their own comfort zone more than anything else. Yeah, and they don't have the tools <laughs> to take themselves out of their hole that they've built for themselves. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I think so. So the story sounds like so you're 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 five years old. You just you 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 know you're interested in magic. You also have this amazing thing where your mother is an English teacher, and as William Zinza says, you know, clear thinking is clear writing. So you're already used to putting stuff down on paper. You feel good at. You know that that's powerful. You know you you grow up. You're doing acting, which is a lot of thinking about how people think and having to get into the head of characters. You start reading about philosophy, which is, I've just summarized uh, apology, Plato's apology. It's fascinating to get into people's head and understand the idea of examining your own life and why you believe what you believe. And then you, you end up kind of just like a curious person getting into all of these roles where you're helping other people. And in many ways you become the 
the integrator for many visionaries. So there are lots of people who've started their businesses and you come in, like you say, as number two, and you're just constantly practicing. You know, you come in in a place where you're perfectly situated to get good at helping them, putting to building uh, walls underneath the castles that they built in the sky, effectively. Uh, and then you take that on for yourself. You start doing um, your own business and you at the same time, kind of in this golden age of time and task management, right? The 19, like 1970s and early 1980s, you know, all the time planners are going crazy, everyone's. And so you, you meet all these amazing people who are doing the same things and you start learning from them. And it's a, um, it, you know, it's a, I, you can just look at it and see the story happening. Are there any, um, you talk a lot about your peers as a source of influence for you? Were there, I know you've mentioned people like Peter Drucker in previous interviews, but were there two or three you know, big thinkers who you can look back at reading one of their books or listening to one of their seminars and being, and having the same moment that I had when I read GTD and being like, ah, this is like something which is going to change my life. No. Interesting. <laughs> no, I haven't. You know, I, 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 there's a lot of value I've gotten from a lot of people and a lot of books. Yeah. Can't say there was any one thing that really, that really sort of turned me around. Uh, I think a lot of the, some of the most uh, dramatic uh, experiences I had with books was when I was in my own, my sort of my spiritual journey, my spiritual path, uh, re reading a book like Black Elk Speaks, uh, you know, Black Elk incredible. Speaks. I've book. not heard of that one. I'm, I, so have you, uh, that's, I love book recommendations, by the way. It's one of my favorite things. So I'm going to write Black Elk Speaks. I'm actually just to type a note now. I mean, I'll get it from the recording, but um, any others? And, and I read, uh, I read Dianetics, you know, yeah. Albert's book. Yeah. And I read, uh, 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 Aspensky's uh, 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 person that wrote about him and wrote about that, um, forget the name of it, uh, whatever that was. Oh, and, and certainly in my, in, in, in college, when I, what really turned me on to history and the, and the history of thought was reading Spengler's The Decline of the West. Mm, he was yeah. the guy who basically you know, very Germanically, you know, said, you know, talk, talked about cultures having a, a life of their own. Yeah. And the, the different, I think he identified seven or nine basic cultures that had their own birth and childhood and noontime and then, you know, uh, sundown time and then, you know, end times. Yeah. And uh, you know, he was the one that, he was the first one, and this, this was in the early 1900s when he was writing about this, he was the first one to sort of talk about. Um, that, that Western civilization was in the same cycle as Rome was. So the fall of Rome and, you know, the Western civilization was, you know, was, was going to crumble in the same way that Rome, that Rome did. Interesting, interesting stuff. Anyway, yeah. so that was, that was also quite fascinating to me. And I think that was one of the things that, that uh, you know, sort of got me uh, thinking, you know, about that kind of stuff and, you know, just noticing, you know, how that worked. Yeah. So... I do yeah. think there's, um, whenever I'm, so people often come with these external, the external problem of productivity, they feel super overwhelmed. And I think uh, a very wise friend said to me once that there are two ways to sort of uh, have an enlightenment moment. You can either lose everything or you can gain everything. Um, and those are the two points at which you do things. And I think one of the things that I, I find most interesting when I work with people on a system like GTD is you teach them a system 
they think their main problem is external and they think it's because they haven't reached wherever they're going yet. And so you teach them the system that will help them get to wherever it is they want to go. And then suddenly they realize that they're not, you know, that it's not that they're not happier. I think there's certainly like a, there's a, less anxiety. There's, there's uh, less stress. There's, you know, better sleep, your life definitely, you know, you make, you have better outcomes, but you suddenly realize that um, there's this inner journey that you have to go on as well of just realizing that if, if you weren't, if there wasn't a cognitive dissonance between where you are now and some place that you want to be, it, it's not that uh, there always will, you don't have to feel it as a stressful experience, but you can, you always have to have that there because otherwise what's, you know, there are always problems to solve. That's part of being human, right? That's what makes being human so interesting. Well, we're teleological. You're always doing something. Mm. Even, even when you are doing nothing, you're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> you, can't, yeah. you can't, you can't stop. Uh, unless you, you know, unless you, you know, go to sleep, but even then you're probably still teleological in terms of the dream state. I'm so. interested. Um, so obviously people talk to you a lot about the external journey, the, the getting things done thing, but you know, we talk about influences and you brought up some people who talked about the spiritual side of things. Have you found that those are two separate journeys or have you found that they have uh, influenced each other in some way or, you know, did you find that you also end up going on an internal journey with some of your clients when you're teaching them about GTD? You know, is there more to it than just the systems and processes? Or? Well, you know, there really is a, 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 there's a backdrop of, you know, my experience in the, in, in, in the, my spiritual quest. Uh, you know, there's some things I learned about that and things I, I sort of working hypotheses mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. And my working hypothesis was we're really on the planet to do two, two, two key things um, in terms of our job here. One is to complete, the other is to create. Mm -hmm. In other words, there is a necessity to finish whatever you've put in motion, whether that was 10 minutes ago or 10,000 lifetimes ago. Mm -hmm. You're, you will eat it. You, you, you put it in motion, it's out there. You know, it's going to come around and it will, there will be something that you will need to complete or finalize or finish about that. Mm. Um, you know, I think a lot of the, even the, the Christ action, you know, Jesus was quite a, a phenomenal um, a teacher about that. And a lot of that was about completion, you know, completing things, making sure you don't have open loops that are hanging out there. So completing things, you know, that seemed to be a, a huge part of, of um, what we were, really needed to do. And then once you get clear, because you completed, you can't help it. You now need to focus on what you're creating. Yeah. So you can't stop creating. So you're always creating. So there's this, this dynamic of finishing things and then creating new things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I first designed the, 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 the training, I said, there, there's really two things that I want to make sure that I share with people from my experience, both internally as well as what I noticed in the world and my own experience out here was the power and the necessity for clarity of completing things, or at least acknowledging what is an open loop and what is incomplete you know, yeah. in your life. Yeah. You know, that gets translated in GDD terms called what has your attention. Yeah. You know, that, and, and you can fool me, but you can't fool yourself you know, yeah. in terms of decisions you've made and agreements you've made with yourself. And so being accountable and responsible to yourself about those, mm. you know, and the power of that and the necessity to do that, to stay clear and focused. And then once you're clear and focused, where do you, what are you now creating? Yeah. <laughs> you can't stop creating. So you're still putting in motion. You just want to make sure you put the things in motion that some part of you has agreed with yourself 
you know, need to be or you want to be really in motion, you know, out there. So those two things wound up being the core, the essence of what getting things done is really about. Interesting. It's about I'm, completion and about creation. I'm and, super, and so, sorry. you know, that, you can tie that to the universe, you can tie it to the spiritual world, you can tie it to all kinds of things. So in that way, uh, my experience with, you know, in the spirit is the same stuff. You're still going to need to complete there and, and create there. It's just the that, spirit, you know, spiritual becomes the why and the what and the GTD becomes part of the answer of the how in terms of physical it is, but I don't, I don't try to fool anybody and say that GTD is spiritual. Yeah, no, no. It, it, it allows you, if you're on a, a path of exploring the spirit or yourself, it makes that easier to do because it, uh, it reduces the distractions out there and allows you to get, you know, clearer about the, about that stuff, but it's not necessary. All I have to do is take a, 15 year old or a nine year old and say, what, what's that piece of paper doing in your pack? What do you think you need to do about it? Yeah. And instead of them being the victim to what the, to that note that they really need to get to mom to sign, you know, that they've forgotten about, they now are in the driver's seat of their life with it. Yeah. And they're now appropriately engaged with it. So appropriate yeah. engagement, I think is true on any level, you know, <laughs> are you appropriately engaged with, uh, you know, whatever, and then you can name whatever that is. So the, the neat thing about it is that, you know, there's nothing in GTD that hurts. As I said, we say it's not like running with scissors. Yeah, yeah. You know, anything, you, anything you do to get more stuff out of your head, because your head wasn't designed to remember, remind, prioritize, or manage more than four things before you start to lose cognitive abilities. And so there is, there is one, that, there is one catch though. The downside I often see with people is sometimes you can be in denial about how much stuff there is to complete in your life because in some ways you you know you're if, if you think of the human brain as like a someone with a flashlight you know and they're moving around a room and the room is full of stuff you know in some ways it can be a blessing in disguise to only be able to see the little bit of the light that, that's being lit up right and i often see people put everything down on paper on gtd and they spend you know, six hours seven hours they get it all out and then they go oh my gosh <laughs> you know how have i got all this stuff i mean that must be something you're familiar with sure well you know in our experience usually you know doing coaching for years with you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of people the typical mid to senior level professional it takes one to six hours just mm -hmm. to gather all that not mm -hmm. to organize it not to prioritize it just to identify what's mm, got their yeah. attention. Because to your, to your point, you can only remember one at a time. Yeah. And so you don't know how many are lying under the rock until you start to roll the rock over and go, oh my God, yeah, 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 <laughs> look yeah. at all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I just, I just uh, met a guy yesterday, a big champion of my stuff, and his, his comment was it took him three days. Yeah, yeah. I think especially if you don't <laughs> obey the two minute rule and you start getting into the, you know, uh, your famous two minute rule is much easier to talk about than it is to actually be disciplined about. And I find that often people get into it and then, you know, they find something, they go off and do a 10 minute, you know, errand and then a 20 minute, and then it can take three days to get everything down on paper because you're doing as well as stop as sure. co uh, co uh, collecting, right? So, Sure. And, and that's, you know, that's, one of the things that, that this method of, that GTD did was, you know, illuminate the difference between collecting and organizing. Yeah. Yeah. Most people don't, don't, don't have that distinction and that's what causes a lot of the ambiguity yeah. and weirdness. And so those are two very different things, different tools and, you know, and different processes yeah. uh, that to, 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 to do that. So, 
Yeah, so th that's, I think, one of the important distinctions that people who really get GTD understand, the difference between those two things. Yeah, so hard to do. And you see, I see it with people when they're going through their email inboxes as well, the difference between sorting things into an action folder and a waiting folder and replying to emails, you know, to really obey the two-minute rule. I always say to people that a good rule of thumb is if you couldn't reply with an emoji or a string of emojis, it's probably not a two-minute reply, you know, unless you're just forwarding it to someone because otherwise it's so easy to get like five, 10, 15 minutes into it. Um, so I'm, I'm, something I'm super interested in is um, we talked a lot about the idea of completion and creation, right? And so what I see it happens with a lot of people when, uh, when they implement GTD, when they do it well, when they first implement it, is if this is their life, you know, the full, every, and they're, they're back to back, they have, you know, 300 hours of stuff scheduled every week. They implement GTD, they get it going, they get it running smoothly. And what happens is it kind of like compresses everything to this. And this is this like amazing, one, this feels great because it's out of your head. And two, you have this amazing creative space then where you, you're like, wow, I can actually take on more projects. I feel comfortable saying yes to this, or I can, you know, actually take the weekend off and I don't feel worried about stuff. But what I've seen happen a lot of the time is, and what happened to me actually early on is I basically just ended up then the space that I created ended up just filling up with more and more things because you become the kind of person who has a reputation for being able to complete stuff. People then give you their stuff to complete. And so what you end up doing is you end up being twice as efficient or three or four or five times as efficient, but you're still just as busy. And that's when people I think have their first, or it's when I had my first disillusionment with the system, when I was like, wow, this was amazing for three weeks. And now I'm just doing three times as much stuff, three times as efficiently. So what, what's, uh, what do you, I mean, you must've seen that a lot as well. Is that a common mistake that you see people making and, and how do you talk to people about that? How do you coach them through that? Um, it's a pretty common syndrome for people who really get inspired with GTD. And to your point, they get inspired to take on more and more and more and more stuff. At some point, usually it takes a year or two. You, if you got that at a point in three weeks, uh, you know, that, that was fast. Um, but usually then they go, wait a minute, I'm burning out. Yeah. You know, that's not what GTD is really about. And that's really true. So, you know, my only coaching to them is a great, you know, I couldn't have told you that. There's only one way you're going to find that out. You'll experience that, mm. right? And then at a certain point, you'll come up with a, the, 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 a balance usually internally with how much stuff you're willing to commit to and to take on. But, you know, one of my sayings is the better you get, the better you better get. You know, <laughs> for, yeah. for, in a sense, for the, not only uh, that you're going to be given and giving yourself more sophisticated and complex things to do, but you also need to get better at, at uh, the triage yeah. and, yeah. and saying, hmm, someday maybe is a good list to have. Yeah, that's the killer and, list. If you don't have a good someday maybe list, then the whole, it's like, a ho like one of those cartoon hose pipes where someone stands on the end and it just starts. And I, people come <laughs> to me, they go, Arthur, I've got 70 projects. And I'm like, what, have you moved anything to your someday maybe list? And they, and they often, that's where the block is, uh, one of the places anyway. Sure. Um, you know, the, the someday maybe list is kind of a, a big sleeper you yeah. know, in, the, in, the, in the system. And a lot of people, because they don't trust the someday maybe list, because they think, well, that's just, it's kind of a throwaway. It's not. Uh, then they don't put things on there yeah. that they really are interested in doing at some point. And so then yeah. they fill up all their other lists with those things that they're really not going to, don't have the bandwidth to, to manage or to, or to deal with. Yeah. So 
Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I find people, especially things like reading where people get forwarded interesting presentations or PDFs or eBooks or whatever it is. And they don't want to, they don't want to put it in there someday, maybe because they're worried that they'll never get around to it. And so they keep it in the action folder. And then before you, before you know what's happened, you have like a, an action folder that's full of stuff that needs doing, but also is just a someday maybe folder and people then stop using the action folder and then they're back to square one with the inbox and say, so yeah, I totally yeah, pretty easy, it. pretty easy to go numb. Yeah. To your 100%. list. Yeah, I, I would love to talk about the weekly review in a minute. I, I really liked your point about the the better you get, the better you better get. Um, I always think of it, um, you know, when you if you were riding a bicycle and you hit a stone at five miles an hour, it's no big deal. You kind of get back on your thing. But if you're, you know, trying to break a land speed record across the Gobi Desert and you hit a, you know, a, a, a tiny little pebble, then, you know, you go flying out. And I think that's another thing that people often find is they there's the first thing where you end up getting totally stressed. And the second is where you have your first major blowout where, you know, something goes wrong, you get sick, something happens, you come back and your system is a total mess. Often people are deadlining everything in their system. They come back, everything's red and, you know, they haven't obeyed the rule about keeping the next actions and the projects and the, and the outcome or projects and the plan separate and it's chaos. So these are all, all common issues that I see people suffering with. I'm sure you've seen it hundreds and hundreds it's of times. It's true, sure. And, you know, I, to be fair, uh, you know, it took me several years, you know, myself to both explore and build and refine what this model was even for myself. Yeah. So, you know, I, I understand it kind of, you know, you're swallowing a big pill all at once. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and you can, it's pretty easy to run the rails. I, I really, and I really love your, so I always say to people, I say the only way to version 100 is through version one, right? There's no way that anyone can just, some people can help you get through the versions quicker, but you have to go through version one yourself. And I love, you know, when, when I said, is there any way you can fix this? I love the, the fact is that you just have to go through it yourself. You have to explain the only way that you can work out what homeostasis looks like, what the, the, the golden mean looks like is to experience both of those extremes and, and to go through it. So sure. I think, well, I think, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and in a, in a very simple way, it's like trying to explain what GTD is like to somebody before they actually start to do it. It's like trying yeah, to yeah, explain yeah. what trying to describe what chocolate tastes like if they never tasted it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so or driving a car. Imagine someone like saying, "You're going to be fine. These are all the things you need to do." And you get in the car, you're like, "Ah." <laughs> um, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. So I'm curious. Um, so one one of the things which I also struggled with when I um, this is years and years in. So I, I built the system and um, I ended up having this thing where I actually ended up uh, my sort of my short term goals that I'd been aiming towards um, ended up disappearing. And what I found is that I hadn't done any of the thinking on the horizons that you talk about. So the six horizons that I think you mentioned um, in the book. And I got out of my job. I was working at McKinsey and I, I had this I call it like a Ferrari, you know, I'd like built this amazing system. And I was like, I don't know where to point it anymore. And when you don't know where to point it, and even when I was at McKinsey with hindsight, it would have been helpful to have that because it would have helped me triage better. You know, how do you say no when you don't have a batner, right? When you don't have a best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So if someone says, hey, can you do this piece of work? And your choice is do the piece of work or don't do it, you know, you're going to do it. But if your choice is don't do the piece of work or spend time with your family or your loved ones or whatever it is, some other goal that you're excited about. So I'm super curious to know, I know you say in the book, you should do those and, and people can read this in the summary and also in your book, but there's the six, the six or five levels or five horizons that you, you talk about, but how do you on a day to day basis or a week to week basis, how often are you reviewing those? How, how do you, 
build those into the actual workflows so that you're saying no to the right things and and getting better at not over not letting this happen where you end up fitting up with everything i don't have a system for that other than paying attention to what has my attention and what do i need to do to get that off my mind and many times it's been you know i'm just kind of running fast to catch up with the visions that i've had yeah <laughs> you know? and uh you know, completing a lot of that. And I only need to rethink it if there's a reason to rethink it, you know? And again, I spent, you know, come on, I'll be 75 in a couple of months. So, you know, I've got a lot of miles on my tires where I've done a lot of that kind of work over the years to help clarify that, get clear about what I wanted, writing out my ideal scenes. Catherine, my wife and I still write out ideal scenes. You know, we're looking for some property right now. And you know, sitting down and, okay, what would our ideal really be and what would it look like? And so, you know, thinking about those kinds of things, it just became part of my cognitive style. Yeah. You know, I learned about affirmations back in 1980, 1979, 1980, uh, the power of affirmations and I've used those ever since. How many, how many years is that? What, 40 years? Yeah. So I've had, you know, I've had a set of affirmations and just thinking, thinking affirmationally. You know, after a while, it just kind of, that just became, hey, how would I like to feel this afternoon? How would I like to, to feel at the end of this keynote speech? How would I like to, you know, the first thing I wrote when I wrote getting things done were the reviews, right? So when you say that, the reviews, you mean? I wrote the, I wrote the ideal reviews of the book. Oh, got you. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. You did that after or before you started? Before. Yeah, before that's I started. Great. I love that. That's the first thing I did. And the bad news about that was it raised the bar so high, the first draft didn't work. <laughs> and it, so I just threw away the, that took a, a year to write the first draft and it didn't cut it. That's so interesting. And I, just, I just threw it away and started again, took another year to write the next, to write the, the first draft again. <laughs> How long? So it's, I'm, I'm curious because the, the book reads like a, you know, I like all great books. It reads like, you know, it looks easy. It's like when you watch the Olympic, you know, the Olympic athletes, you know, you sit, you're like, oh, he must have just knocked this out in a couple of days. You know, it's clearly thought through. But was it a super long drawn out process? Did it take years and years? Did you start penning ideas for the book five years earlier? Or was it, you know, what kicked it off? And why did you decide to write the book in the first place? Yeah, well, I moved it. I pulled the trigger on it in 1997 when I moved from someday maybe to a real project. Yeah, I'll write the book. You know, I just had some good advisors say, David, come on, it, it's time for you to write the manual. And so I uh, said, oh, okay, how do I do that? So it took a year to, to figure out how do you do that? You know, and, you know, basically I read, I read three or four books about how do you sell a book? How do yeah. you, how do you, how do you do that? Do you get an agent? Do you go right to a publisher? Do you, what is it? And I got some good advice from people in the industry and wound up uh, getting a great agent and writing a, you know, a, it's a pretty strenuous process to write a business plan for the book because publishers just don't do this stuff on a whim. And, and I didn't even think much about self-publishing. I think that it, that was a possibility back then, but um, you know, I, if the topic was good enough that a big, uh, a big publisher, you know, would potentially like it or buy into it, then, you know, you can't beat that in terms of, sure. of the, the, the reach in terms yeah. of what, what it would do. And so, so anyway, that took a, that took a year to get the deal, to write the outline for the book 
and uh, you know grab some of the you know, and, and you know by that time I'd accumulated a, a quite a bit of the content for that but then it took the next year to write the first draft and as I said it didn't work yeah you know, oh damn you know so I just started again and yeah. then it took another year to write the next draft and then it took the, the fourth year was finally to get the title for the book. Man, I've got about 800 used titles. I'll sell you real cheap. That was like, wow, what do you title this thing? What was you the know, second, get, have you got a second best title or, or second or third best title off the top of your head? <laughs> we actually played with the Zen and the art of in-basket maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, you know, that was a little too cheesy. So uh, that, I, I don't remember what all the stuff was that we came up with, but we were targeting it back then. Uh, you know, and then it wound up, you know, getting published uh, first first week of really of two thousand and one. Wow! So, so it took four years, was, really. Wow! For, I mean, that you know, again, it's one of those things that people people don't really get is how long it takes to put a project like that into place. And like you said, I mean, how many years of coaching was it before you were even ready to write the book? And believe it or not, I mean, <laughs> you know. It took me a long time to learn that if I, you know, I had a breakfast meeting with a client and then stood up and did a seminar, a full day seminar, and then had, mm -hmm. you know, drinks with the client afterwards and then got on a plane telling myself that I was going to write the next chapter. It was like, who are you kidding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the stress that that produced, it was funny, you know, almost became an alcoholic writing a book about stress-free productivity. <laughs> you know, so it's like, oh my God. You know, for me to realize that it took at least four hours, I needed at least four hour space where I didn't have anything else to do. Otherwise, I would step on my own toes when I tried to, you know, write anything else and to get back into the flow of what was going on. So that took a long time. One of the coolest things I did um, that helped a lot, uh, Penguin, Viking, you know, was a, a subset of Penguin, they they had a they did copy editing and i said okay copy editing are they going to lose the voice of whatever this was and it turned out that the copy editor was great and it didn't lose the voice it actually enhanced my voice as mm -hmm. i say it's like it's like she gave it a bath you know <laughs> because you know she i wound up saying something that took like 25 words to say and then yeah. she shrunk it down to about 12 words that said what i was trying to say better than i was trying to say it yeah, yeah. so i got i got so enthralled by that what i did was i i typed in i retyped the whole book with the copy edits so that i could learn to think like a copy editor and that mm -hmm. that has made a difference ever since in terms of my writing that's so interesting you know? there's, there's a lot of people who recommend that as a some great copywriting courses and uh, in fact most copywriting mentors they talk about uh, and even William Zinzer you know he talks about finding beautiful passages that you love and just copying them out by hand as an amazing way to strengthen your writing and I imagine when it's your own thinking that's been strengthened you know you just then internalize all those sound bites and you're able to communicate them much more succinctly than maybe it was possible before. Uh, it, it mostly you know uh, it expanded by shrinking yeah in other words it, you know it, it's it's funny thing because even in, in all the seminars and training that I've done, you know, that every time I try to make it shorter, it gets longer. Yeah. Because when you make it shorter, you get more to the essence. And once you tap into the essence, it just expands your creativity like crazy yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. about that. So it's a, I think there's a physics thing, you know, the more you compress it, the more you, the more power it gets, yeah. you know, in a way. So yeah. learning to write in a compressed way, you know, is there an easier, faster, simpler way to say what I'm trying to say? Yeah, because I can get I can get wordy and mental and as well as anybody, you know, about that if I don't watch it. Yeah, and it's really nice to to to, to coach myself in that in that way. That kind of stuff. 
it took me, I think, at least 10 years to reverse the damage that university, that college did to me, where your, my tutor would say, I know I want a 3,000 word essay on this. And I would turn three bullet points into 3,000 words and be super pleased with myself. And because it was academics, I'd get a, you know, a great mark for it. And then when I went out into the real world, people were like, no, you need to do the opposite. How can you turn 3,000 words into three bullets and then write another 30 bullets? And I was like, oh. <laughs> but, so I share your pain. <laughs> I know what that's like. Omit needless words, uh, as the old adage goes. Um, we are, we, I'm, I'm conscious of time and I want to ask, uh, there's a thousand things I want to ask, but I, I want to ask one specific question because I know people will kill me if I don't ask it, which is the thing, there's a great meme out there of a guy who uh, he, he finds a treasure chest. I don't know if you've seen it. And he's like, this is it. This is the answer to why GTD keeps failing it, failing me. And then he opens the scroll and it says, you keep missing your weekly review. Um, and that's like the essence of why most people fall off the wagon. They just, you know, if you don't trust, you don't do the weekly review, you don't trust the system. If you don't trust the system, the system falls apart. But for so many people, they're like, oh man, I tried to do my weekly review. It took me two days. I tried to do my weekly review. It took me one day. Um, I'm sure you've seen that a lot, a lot. Do you A, have any advice or B, have any tricks for reducing the load of the weekly review so it's, it's not such a beast at the end of each week? Well, the more regularly you do it, the faster you get at doing it. Yeah, you know, so just practice. Uh, because, yeah. well, and you know, the more also that you just work the practice during the week, you don't let a lot of dross you know, sort of mount up on you. Yeah. And a lot of people are trying to use the weekly review as a way to clean up their email. And, you know, a good friend of mine does cleans up everything and gets his all his in baskets to zero on Thursday night. So that Friday morning when he does his weekly review, it's a real review, not just catch up. Yeah. You know, and you know, so those are some of the tricks and, you know, having the same at the same time in the same place, you know, there's a part of us that loves habits in that way. Um, I've got good, uh, classical music that I turn on to Spotify, mm. uh, you know, and when I'm doing the weekly review, not very loud, but just kind of Baroque, you know, stuff in the background, Vivaldi yeah. and, and things like that. And that, that kind of gets me into that modality. It gets me into yeah. sort of executive thinking about myself. And the weekly review is a very creative, as you know, it's a very creative time. It's not just a static, you know, catch up. And a lot of people try to do that and therefore it's not that inspiring to them. And so they let it slide. Yeah. And again, you can't let it slide. You know, I, I like to use the analogy uh, that if you like a, a particular sport, any particular team sport, like soccer, for instance, you know, or football, as they call it over here. So, you know, uh, how much of the week do you think they spend preparing and reviewing and getting ready for their work? You know, try five days out of six. Yeah. Right. And most yeah. people won't even spend five minutes a day trying to get their day together. Yeah. So how much time do you think it's worth? And by the way, if you did nothing but review for seven hours, your eighth hour is going to be hot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. As yeah. opposed to just being busy, you know, out there. So yeah. the, the, the weekly review is, it, you know, well, you know, the late great Peter Drucker would tell everybody, it's like your, your biggest job is defining what your work is. Yeah. And it takes time to define your work. Yeah. You know, it takes an hour a day just to define the work that's coming at you, yeah. both internally generated and externally, you know, uh, received. And then it's going to take at least a couple hours a week to define your work from a little higher level and altitude and perspective. Yeah. And I wish I could have, I wish I had the magic pill that would inspire people to do the weekly review, you know, but it's, it is the universal uh, habit that's, uh, the hardest probably in, you know, to, to do in GTD. 
for sure. to get yourself to do it. It's kind of one of those things like planning when you, when you least feel like planning is when you most need to do it. Yeah. And when you least feel like you have time to do the weekly review is when you absolutely should be doing it. Yeah. You know? So it's kind of one of those little paradoxical things. So. That's so interesting. So I heard, I had three main things. The first is practice. If you do it lots, it gets, you just get better at it. The second is interspersing little clearing sessions, either before like as a big chunk or, but basically before the weekly review so that it's not, six days of stuff then you spend the whole you know we put everything on one day clearing it out um uh, and then uh the third one has totally gone out of my head which was create a context um, you know, yeah so it's, i think the context but i think also actually the mindset around it which is that i think a lot of people see the weekly review as some like extra thing they have to do in their week instead of an integral part of their week you know some people be like okay well i already had five days worth of stuff now how do i have to do the weekly review on day six when actually the weekly review is probably day one of day five and even if you lose one day of work because you've planned your stuff the other four days are going to be much more effective than if you didn't do it so it's a it's a shift in mindset towards planning as a useful an essential part of execution rather than simply an, a nice added bonus that they don't have to do well said. I think the cue, the cue on the habits is, a, is, you know, same time, same place is definitely key. I often recommend to my clients, so I, I, in, I add a, uh, what I call an end of work shutdown, which is kind of like a mini clearing of your inboxes where you just prioritize your major inboxes. And uh, at the end of each day before you do your, your evening planning, or I do mine at 12 o'clock because that's when I finish work, um, I, uh, I just get through as many of those inboxes as I can. You know, I, I set a time limit of 30 minutes and I just go through as much as I can. And what I find is that that's the difference between my weekly review taking six hours uh, when I do it or it taking two hours and being mostly about exciting planning for next week and not so much about, you know, clearing inboxes and, and moving stuff and, you know, moving boxes. Um, Indeed. But yeah, that's really, really helpful. So I'm curious, um, just in our last few minutes, uh, there are three things I would love to know. The first is like a super snapshot of, because everyone will want to know, what tools does David Allen use? You know, everyone, I, I have, learned, have long since learned that tools are actually get in the way of GTD most of the time rather than improving it. But people want to know, you know, what do you use? Do you, uh, how do you do your quick capture on your phone? What system do you use on your computer? Do you even use a computer? Are you still using a labeler and a 43 physical file system? Um, so a few minutes on that I would love. And then I would love to talk a little bit about what you're working on now um, and also if people have enjoyed this interview and they've enjoyed your book and they've maybe read it or they've just read the summary, where should they go next and what are the next steps? So, so tools, uh, what are you excited about that you're working on now and where can they go to find more information? Tools, well, what I've used mostly for my organizational tool, we still are using what was used to be Lotus Notes, then IBM Notes, and then HCL bought, bought it. So we still use that, though we are in the process of migrating to, to uh, Microsoft 365. So we're going to make a transition over to that. So that's that's a whole process. I've got a good consultant that's. Can I share quickly? I, as that. as a McKinseyite, I, when I arrived at McKinsey, I could not believe we were still using Lotus Notes. When I first logged in, I was like, "What even is Lotus Notes? It's it's so archaic." But McKinsey still uses it as their main thing. So anyway, so Lotus Notes, but you're moving to Office three six five. Well, most people just never use learned how to use Lotus Notes. It's still a much more sophisticated than it's anything out there. super powerful, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, incredible. Anyway, so, and you know, my, my consultant, a uh, good friend of mine who was my CTO for about 10 years, designed a, something called e-productivity, which is an overlay on notes. 
that really you know sort of matches the GTD process a, a lot easier. They're all just yeah. list managers, if you will. And yeah. I still use Ever Evernote just for static reference material and checklists and things like that. Yeah, I use the you know the Microsoft Suite, you know PowerPoint, the Word, and Excel. You know, those are typical stuff. I use that snag it a lot to, you know, capture stuff, screens captures. Yeah. Um, how do you, if you, if you're out at a restaurant and someone recommends a book to you, how do you capture that? Oh, well, the way I've done it for 30 years, which is. On paper. That's awesome. So you just Absolutely. get it out and try to No battery, and... no Wi-Fi, you know, and it's right there. No clicks. No need to. So 98% of my capture is just, is low tech. Yeah. You know, right at my desk where I work, you know, this is right here all yeah. the time because many times I think of something while I'm doing something else yeah. and I need instantly to be able to offload that and uh, my physical entry. So those are low tech is my capture. I do have a capture on my iPhone. A couple of GTDers in Amsterdam designed a really, uh, a really neat capture tool. It's called Brain Toss. The reason it's really neat is because instead of going into a black hole in the phone, if I yeah. record it there, it's programmed to instantly send it to my email, Interesting. either a picture or voice or text, however I want to capture it. But I still barely even use that because it takes a click, it takes two yeah, clicks yeah. to turn it to turn it on. I'm like, why? Yeah, yeah. Why should I do that? Not only that, you know, I, then you do need, you know, the tech tech is fine if you're really used to using it and you empty the in basket in wherever you throw the stuff in there. But yeah. a lot of people, it's just a black hole. And so, yeah. you know, it, it, it stinks and it starts to smoke and <laughs> just, yeah, you, know, yeah. Yeah, you know, yuck. So, you see, my, my, my least favorite thing at McKinsey was when you'd walk into a client and they would say, oh, we've got this big issue, but don't worry, we're about to install a new piece of software and it will solve everything. And you'd be like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like tech speeds stuff yeah. up. It doesn't solve problems. If you have a bad system, if you can't do it on paper, it's not going to work. Right. And then True. tech is a good way to, to automate a paper system. So I think it's good that you're still on on the paper. That's Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, what else did you ask? Oh, Labeler. Yes, I'm still using Labeler. I'm not using the brother anymore. I found the Dymo uh, plug and play PNP uh, is great because you don't need to install software. You can plug it into a Mac, you can plug it into a yeah. PC. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Easy to type, print out one label at a time, click. So I'm still using that. I'm not using the physical 43 folders. I, I probably would if it were easy to find file folders and a, and a file cabinet that worked. But in Europe, it's awful. You can't find anything like that. Yeah. So I built that in. I it, actually I use this the the tickler function uh, I use in the e productivity that that Eric designed for me. So I just put stuff in there, and it just has a date stamp on it. But I also can see all of that stuff coming toward me if I want to open up my tickler file. I'll see it all. So it's not like I only see it on some future date. Yeah. Um, so you know that works. So Lotus Notes to be are you using it for email as well. So for people who don't know what Lotus Notes is, imagine it's like Outlook, but on steroids where like almost Outlook combined with Evernote combined with, and you can build custom applications on it. So you're doing your, your email and your sort of uh, your next actions lists and things like that uh, within uh, IBM. Then you're uh, doing quick capture on paper and also with the, uh, what was the name of the uh, app that you're using that you, the people in Amsterdam built? for quick capture? Oh, brain toss. Brain toss um, yeah. for that. And then you're also using, so your 43 folders and then you're using Evernote for your reference file system. What about your, do you write the visions areas down? You know, when you talk about the, the six different horizons, mm. are you writing your mission down and things like that? Do you keep that in Evernote yeah. as well? Or is that in a different? Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm using um, uh, Mind Manager. So I use a mind mapping program. 
that has a lot of that stuff in it. So that's cool. Any uh, other tools that you couldn't be without or that you recommend? Couldn't be without, couldn't be without. Some of them just become so ubiquitously, you know, available to me. Uh, well, obviously, you know, my, my uh, several in baskets that hold like pending and support materials that, I, that, that tie to the things that are tracked mm -hmm. in my digital, in my digital world. So those are, you know, absolutely critical. Uh, but, you know, have an iPhone, an iPad, and, you know, 16-inch Mac, so. Yeah. Are you using uh, an Apple, an iPad Pro with the Apple Pencil? Not with a pencil, no. That's game-changing. That, for me, was the moment I got rid of paper. It's um, uh, absolutely amazing. Um, but really? I, yeah, I, honestly, I, I looked for a long time. You know when they had the old iPads and Griffin tried to bring out the old styluses, and I, I tried to get rid of it, but I just could not get rid of paper. I just had to have paper. It's just how I think. But the Apple Pro, I mean, if you haven't tried it yet, it's worth nipping into a store. But the, with, the new app, with the Apple Pencil, it's just... And I use uh, Notability as my app, and I can send everything quickly to Evernote then if I want it. Or I don't use Evernote, I use Dropbox. But, um, but you can send everything quickly. And so it's just a really great way to capture uh, thoughts by hand. Um, yeah, we use Dropbox. I use Dropbox a lot too. Dropbox is great. <laughs> yeah. um, I would, it's a, a conversation for another day is mapping out your system. Um, if people are curious, so GTD has obviously been a huge part of your life. I'm sure it's what everyone asks. Is there, are you working on something different now or is G, are you kind of bedding GTD down? Is that what you plan to work on for the next 10, 15, 20 years? Or well, what's, what's you know, a lot of what we've done since we built a, a global licensee network is yeah. supporting those licensees. And so, you know, I'm not, you know, before the pandemic, you know, I was doing maybe a keynote a month, whatever, you know, all over the world, whoever kind of wanted me to come and, and do that and wanted to pay me for it. But for the most part, all the training and coaching is being done now with our master trainers and our master coaches. And we certify those. So we still maintain the accountability to certify master trainers and maintain a community of practice for that network. A great set of folks out there. I think we have about 35 master trainers now around the world. Yeah, I was looking and our license, in Indonesia. Our, <laughs> I'm in Bali yeah, and I was, I was on the GTD website looking at where you had training things. I was like, wow, you can get GTD training in Indonesia. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we have a great trainer in Brunei that you know, kind of is covering that too. So, so it's a great network of folks. We are actually officially represented in 90 countries. Now, there's not a trainer in every country. And a lot of those are just small countries that are part of a larger region that somebody mm -hmm. has a license for. Uh, so a lot of what I've been doing for the last two years is supporting our new licensees. Like once they get their feet on the ground with it, then I show up because as you probably know, there are a lot of GTD pirates out there. And yeah. so making sure that, that they are, have the imprimatur called this is, these are the people that have our stuff. We have trained them. We yeah. absolutely trust, you know, what they do and how they do it. And, you know, and then I show up and do press and so forth. So, you know, so just in the last year or so, I've been to Moscow, I've been to Tel Aviv, I've been to Oslo, I've been to London, I've been to, you know, Australia. So, you know, kind of banging around, around. And a lot of what we're doing, my wife, uh, Catherine, still does a lot of the uh, sort of final fine tuning of our training materials and coaching materials in print. So making sure that we've got the graphics, making sure we have a, a, an appropriate brand document that people pay attention to that making sure our website is sort of reflective of, of, of what we're doing. So we still, we shrunk really from 50 people to five really, uh, because you know, once we found a partner in the US, Vital Smarts, great partner. Uh, and then we, that does training in the US and Canada for GTD. Yeah. 
And we have a partner, GTD Focus, that does our senior coaching in the U.S. and Canada. Once we set that up, then we didn't need to maintain the overhead of training and coaching uh, there. So we became pretty much an IP licensing company yeah. uh, and supporting all of that, as well as our own GTD Connect and our you know, digital you know, products and, and sort of memberships there. So that's we kind of shrunk the business so we could expand the business in, in terms of just reach out there. And you've, you've now, I guess that means, I mean, obviously there's always more things to do in a day than you'll ever have time to get around to, even if you have GTD and even if you triage well. Have you got any, uh, any sort of plans to write something on the more spiritual side or to get back to your history roots or anything in the next yeah. few years? Not, not so much. There's really a, some unsung heroes as part of even GTD that could probably use a book or a manual like the natural mm. planning model, cool. for instance, is this real sleeper. Very few people really, really have utilized that. And it is, it's, it's a phenomenal tool. And so, you know, creating a handbook for that or some sort of a, you know, some sort of a guide using that, you know, would be, would be a really neat thing. Uh, talking to my editor about the possibilities of that. And also, uh, GTD and co corporate organizational culture is also uh, a topic that could use, uh, whether it's a whole book or not, I'm not sure, but we now have enough miles on our tires and enough people doing good GTD work in, in organizations of all sizes out there. Because people often say, well, how does GTD work for teams? How does it work in a culture? And, uh, you know, that's a, it's a topic to explore because it's subtle. Uh, how it works. It works. You know, it's, it's incredible. You know, once you get a, a whole group of people that kind of get this, it just moves you up the food chain, you know, uh, quite a bit yeah. as an organization. You know, so, so people that, uh, so go ahead. Yeah. So that, and those, I, I'll probably co-authoring that with, you know, a couple of our uh, master trainers out there that, that have a lot of experience, you know, in that regard. Uh, otherwise, uh, I picked up the flute again. I taught myself to play it 30 years ago, and then I dropped it off, and it got stolen, and I didn't replace it. And then about <laughs> a year ago, I said, you know, I should keep doing that. Then I started doing acrylic painting as well. So those are things that sort of keep me involved and you know, keep my creative energy, you know, still still you going. And I'm still doing a good good bit of writing. I'm still, you know, uh, and two or three interviews and podcasts like this a week, still. So. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, it's amazing that you're so generous with your time to, to chat. It, I mean, it's been such a, uh, an honor to get to talk to you. You know, like I said, before we started recording, I, I sent a message out to my email subscribers and I said, you know, David's going to, uh, has agreed to do a podcast, uh, an interview and uh, more than at least one of them came back with the words living legend in it. And I was inundated with questions and, you know, people who, who've, found your work have a very similar experience to me where for them it was for a lot of people it's a watershed moment in their careers and their lives and has impacts then not just on their work but through how they you know how their relationships work and how they feel about themselves and how they perceive themselves as someone who is productive or you know even their ability to think of themselves as creative people a lot of people who get so bogged down in the they're doing stuff suddenly get it all sorted out and they're like wow now i can be a creative person and so i think it's a it's an amazing thing that you've created and it's helped millions of people so well thanks yay <laughs> I've, I've been very graced to have stumbled upon something you know i've paid my dues it took me a long time to try to figure out what i was going to do in my life and, yeah. and work and uh so uh wonderful to have come across something that doesn't hurt improves anybody's condition no matter how much of it they use and uh you know and improves the planet you know and my our mission and my mission is to create a world where there are no problems only projects 
So, you know, that's, that's a, <laughs> I'm probably not going to see that, you know, happen. And, you know, maybe I've got another 20 years on my tires, who knows, but as long as I'm doing anything in that regard, I'm on course. I love that. It's a very clear mission and also a very powerful one, I think, and something that other people can get behind. So um, if people are excited by what they've heard today, if they've read your book, if they're big fans like me, if they're interested in some of the next projects that you're talking about, I think the natural planning models uh, and one of those amazing gold nuggets that you probably only get the second or third time you read the book, you know, you realize how important, where, where should they go? What's the best way for them to, I guess there's the GTD organization and then there's you personally, what are the two ways they should, should find you? Yeah, well, the GTD organization and me basically just go to gettingthingsdone.com. That's our website. And if you go under training and coaching, you can type in whatever country you live in and you'll see whoever the local, you know, trainers or trainers and coaches are that deliver training and coaching for GTD, yeah. public seminars, you know, as well as in-house seminars and private coaching and, and virtual coaching too. So yeah. a lot of that, you know, a lot of that's going on these days uh, and the virtual stuff. And we, it turned out that it, you know, good timing for us in the last two or three years, we've been working on virtual versions of getting things done training. So, you know, when the Corona hit, uh, you know, a lot of our licensees had to rapidly sort of make sure they got up to speed doing that, but that's working. And so, yay. So th that's how you can get in touch and obviously read the book again. If you got it, if you haven't yeah. read the book, get it. You know, yeah. And, uh, if you're right. If you're watching this video and you haven't read the book, um, I always say there are only two good ways to use book summaries. The first is as a preview to decide if you want to read a book. And the second is to recap the main points from a book that you've already read. There is no substitute for reading the original book. Uh, and in the case of David's book, I, I, like I've said, I read it. I think I summarized it on the fifth or sixth time that I read it. So um, it's definitely one. Well, also, if you, if you haven't read the book yet, or if you're fairly new to GTD and really want to know how to get started, one of the things we wrote uh, last year was the getting things done workbook oh, cool. as a way to simplify all of that, just 10 steps to walk yourself through. And it's actually set up with a workbook with Q, you know, QR codes where you click on it, you see me talk about whatever the thing is a little bit. And we did that mm -hmm. because quite frankly, the book itself can be a bit overwhelming yep. you know, when you, when you, when you pick it up. Uh, yep. and so we, we, you know, I'm not a very good trainer i don't have the patience to, to to do that uh but we've had good instructional designers you know coach us a lot and give us a lot of great advice about how to not to not to denigrate the methodology but to simplify its application and its engagement for people sure. so to kind of lower lower the barrier of entry for people to get get involved and where, where can people find that is that on the website or will they find that in books uh, you can find it wherever wherever english books are are sold you know cool. it's so it's not, a book it's physical yeah it's a physical book yeah, I know it's it, it, it's I know it's in Dutch over here, so don't know. You, you just check and see. Check, you know, check Amazon or wherever your books your bookstore is. That's great. If you're reading it's English the workbook, or is it is the title getting getting things done workbook? Okay, cool. Awesome. I'll check that out. It's always good yeah. to, to have a backup. So, um, yeah, that's it. I mean, honestly, thank you once again. Super interesting. Uh, really interesting to get for me as someone who's followed stuff to, to understand where it came from. And uh, also as someone who's, I wouldn't say, I'm certainly never created uh, anything that's as uh, fundamental as what you created but so you know in the in the sense of helping people and how to learn and how to a lot of people ask me how do you get better at productivity and i think your story around just being around productive people and making it part of what you do and getting a job where you learn learn a skill learn an interesting thing to do and then building on the things that you're interested about there are a lot of valuable lessons to be extracted so thank you yeah. for, for making the time
Sure. My pleasure, Robbie. It was fun. No worries. Take care, David. Ciao. Bye.